Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest news from the front lines, analyse the new British Foreign Secretary's visit to Kyiv, and we interview GP Now, a web-based virtual clinic joining Ukrainian doctors and medical professionals to Ukrainians inside the country and around the world. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 16th of November. One year and 265 days since the full-scale invasion began. And joining me today are Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Foreign Reporters Maiden and Nanu and Verity Bowman, and our guests are Rob Hicken, Head of GP Now, and, for the first time, Spencer Cash, Senior Emergency Response Strategist. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. So let's uh, let's start in the east of Ukraine, around Avdivka. The mayor there says that Russia has stepped up its attacks. This is, as we've been reporting for a while now, Ukraine has said that they're anticipating the third wave of uh, Russian attacks on Avdivka. I mean, there's been near constant military activity there, but the third big push has been anticipated for a while. And Mayor Vitaly Barabash has spoken on national television. He said it's very hot. Indeed, in the last few days, the enemy has become more active. We think in this in this push, as before, Russian troops are continuing to use armoured vehicles. They are targeting the industrial zone, and that's to the north of the main town itself, and hitting positions in the town, striking high-rise buildings, civilian areas, Mr Barabash has said. It chimes with um, today's British Defence Intelligence update that says the recent advances have likely brought Russian forces close to the coke and chemical plant, that is a very large industrial complex producing a variety of chemicals, coke as well, coke included, as to the, I say to the north of the town. It does occupy a key tactical position to the north of the town. It dominates the main road from Avdivka out to the northwest. If Russian forces were to secure it, this is British Defence Intelligence Assessment, if Russian forces were to secure it, resupplying the town would become increasingly difficult. However, they go on to say 
The industrial facility provides Ukraine with a localised defence advantage, as in it's a built-up area. It's very difficult to uh, to take those kind of areas. doesn't mean you can't smash it up so that it doesn't function, but it's, it's difficult to get the defenders out of there. And British defence intelligence continue. They say, as I say, uh, it provides a localised defence advantage and Russian forces will probably suffer significant personnel losses if they attempt to assault the facility. I mean, they have already taken very significant personnel and equipment losses in their effort to take the town. So nothing so far to suggest they're not going to continue their their much attempted up and atom lads running, uh, running at Ukrainian guns without much... Um, much coordination between the various military capabilities they have. Next, down to Herzon, and in a televised briefing, Natalia Natalia Havinyuk, who's the spokesperson for Ukraine's Southern Military Command, she described the front line there in the south as fairly fluid and said Kyiv's forces have been putting Russian troops under pressure along the length of the Dnipro River. She said the pushback from our side is taking place on a line between two to five miles along the entire bank from the water's edge. Now, that sounds a bit specific, but it's not really. We know a lot of the military activity there lately has been around the, the town of Krinky, which is about 30 k's due east of Herzon. It's across the river, about four k's across the river. Uh, there has been geolocated footage in the last few days that, that, that suggests Ukrainian forces have pushed out of the town. Um, and have been active elsewhere along the bank. We know Russian forces for the first time, um, yesterday or the day before, they actually acknowledged that there was a Ukrainian force that, that had, had got a foothold there. This comes after weeks of saying they, they hadn't. There was nothing there, which is you know, palpable nonsense. Anyway, so we'll, uh, we'll continue to keep an eye on there. Ms. Hemenu also, she carried on, she said, for now we ask for informational silence, which would allow us to report later on great successes. I mean, informational silence, it, that's not particularly hard because we don't really know what's going on. We're trying to report what we can see from trusted open source areas, but uh, we, don't, we don't really have an idea, a, a firm idea of the strength of any of these reported armoured vehicles that have got across and therefore whether or not that constitutes any ability whatsoever to continue to push on. But yeah, she wants to uh, she wants room to, to report later great successes. Fair enough. Now, staying in the south, a Russian strike of at least three missiles in half an hour killed two emergency workers, wounded other civilians in the Zaporizhia region yesterday. So the, um, the emergency workers had responded to uh, an initial blast and were killed as they put a fire out from a, an attack that took place only minutes earlier. That's according to Interior Minister Ihor Klemenko uh, via telegram. And uh, regional governor Yuri Malashko said that civilian areas had been hit but gave no further details of, uh, of casualties there. Just finally for me, the European Union looks like it is going to ban the export of precision machine tools and key weapons manufacturing equipment components to Russia. This is reporting from ISW, the Institute for the Study of War. Now, that ban, they say, if enacted and effectively enforced, and uh, the two don't always go hand in hand, they could deal a, a significant blow to Russia's defence industrial base, given the importance of precision tooling in industrial manufacturing. So Bloomberg reported yesterday that the EU's 12th sanctions package proposed a ban on the export of, of these things, the, the precision tools and the machinery parts used to make weapons, ammunition, used in welding machines, lithium batteries, thermostats, motors, drones, etc., ISW site BNE IntelliNews, which was previously known as Business News Europe, uh, a business um, media company focusing on emerging markets, they're now known as BNE IntelliNews. They previously reported 
Russia's near total reliance on European and US produced precision machine tools that makes Moscow particularly vulnerable to these kind of sanctions. And in one of their older articles, it's going back a bit, but it's in 2021, they say Russia up to that point, and I don't think this has changed much from what I could find out, they say Russia imports almost all the precision machines it requires. Now, we have reported before that Russia has been increasingly attempting to develop its own domestic solutions for sourcing what what had been Western-made precision machine tools, certainly since the start of the full-scale invasion, likely in preparation for these sanctions packages that they would have anticipated, directly targeting this vulnerability. The Russian government approved in May earlier this year what they called the concept of technological development until 2030. Now, that plan encourages domestic production of high-tech products such as precision machine tools and it mandates that domestic enterprises produce at least 75% of Russia's high-tech products by 2030. That is a tall order in anyone's book. Now Russian state-owned defence conglomerate Rostec reported in August this year that the Stan Group, Russia's Stan Group, that's the country's largest domestic precision machine manufacturer uh, that Rostec purchased in 2019. Uh, they said it's a major element of the of Russia's what they call import substitution program, i.e., trying to make up for the lack of lack of know-how and um, sophisticated stuff components that they're they're bringing in. Last month, a chap called Semyon Yabukov, who's the head of the Rostak subsidiary, a, a Rostak subsidiary, he told Commerzant, that's a, a Russian politics and business paper, that Rostak hopes to use this stand group to meet Russia's great need, as he describes it for precision machines in the absence of Western imports. Mr. Yakubov said Western sanctions and the war in Ukraine have sharply increased Russia's military and civilian demand for domestically produced machine tools, uh, which I think we already knew, uh, but it's good to have that confirmed. Uh, And Mr. Yakubov said Stan uh, was unable to meet even a third of the total volume of Russia's orders for precision machines in 2023, estimated to be worth about... 6 billion rubles, that's nearly $70 million. So six big B billion rubles, $70 M million, US dollars. And that Russia's demand for precision machines is much greater, his words, than its current production abilities. I'll come back to that in my final thought, the implications there and what this means. But it is, we need to pay increasing attention to what's happening on the sanctions front and the, uh, the def- defence industrial base. But I'll take a pause there, David. Thank you very much, Dom. Uh, Maiden Nanu, as our foreign reporter, can I come to you? You've been running the Ukraine live blog today. There are two fairly chunky stories I think we should get into. First of all, Britain's new foreign secretary is in Ukraine. Can you tell us about this? Hi, David. So, yes, yeah, so today Lord Cameron made his first visit to Ukraine. Well, we believe he actually arrived yesterday and details of the trip were kept under wraps. But he visited Vladimir Zelensky at the presidential palace in Kyiv, and the pair had what appeared to be a very good meeting. He told Zelensky, essentially, that Britain will continue to support Ukraine, whatever it takes. And he said, we will continue to give you the moral support, the diplomatic support, and the economic support, but above all, the military support, for however long it takes. And Zelensky essentially voiced concern or alluded to concern that global attention has shifted to what's happening in the Middle East. And he said the world isn't focused on the situation on our battlefield in Ukraine. And he said that dividing the focus really does not help. 
I think Cameron's language was very reassuring. And later, the Foreign Office put out a statement in which he said, Russia thinks it can wait this war out and that the West will eventually turn its attention elsewhere. And he said that this could not be further from the truth. And also he, um, he made reference to Boris Johnson. He said that he's had some disagreements with his friend Boris Johnson, but he said that Johnson's support for Ukraine was the finest thing that he and his government did. Well, thank you very much, Maidna. Let's move to the US. There's some slightly less good news, it seems, coming out of the US. Talk us through this story. Yes. Yeah, so yesterday, John Kirby, who, as you'll know, is the White House national security spokesman, essentially warned that the US could be nearing the end of the road on its support for Ukraine if it doesn't get more funding. And he said the US could soon lose the ability to support Ukraine's defences without approval for more US military assistance from Congress. He said, they're coming near the end of the road and Ukraine continues to be involved in an active, dynamic fight all along that front. Um, And he says that our ability to continue to support Ukraine is increasingly at jeopardy if we don't get the supplemental funding. Uh, And now this actually ties in quite well with a story from our US editor, uh, Tony Diver, who had a report yesterday that... Ukrainian cities will be vulnerable to Russian missile attacks this winter unless this funding is approved by Congress in the coming weeks. And just as a reminder, Joe Biden's request for a $60 billion package for Ukraine was removed on Monday from a spending resolution in the House of Representatives. And so this means there's like potentially many more weeks of delays before the next tranche of funding can be released. Thank you very much, Maiden. Verity, can I come to you? You've been looking at a very interesting story about, well, the quote is highly likely, end quotes, Russian war crimes. Can you tell us about this? Yes. Hello, David and everyone listening. So a team of international lawyers found that Russia is highly likely to be guilty of war crimes following what it called a systematic weaponization of Ukrainian grain supplies. The investigation, as I said, was launched by a human rights firm and they're called Global Rights Compliance. They've done a lot researching humanitarian issues in Ukraine. So they found that since the beginning of the war, a Kremlin-linked network of grain extraction has been methodically built up in eastern Ukraine. They say it points towards a carefully planned campaign of what they call a criminal nature. They said that Russia used large carrier ships purchased before the war to transport grain seized train tracks and local means of storage, and set up shipping operations in Ukrainian port facilities to export products into Russia. I spoke to Katrina Murdoch, who is the lead of GRC's Starvation Mobile Justice Team, and she told me that in all of their research, they haven't seen anything so systematic or sophisticated in terms of scale until now. I think a lot of the context is quite important here for those listening. It comes against the backdrop of severe disruption of Ukrainian grain exports due to the war. We've spoken a lot before about how Russian blockades have called prices to soar and contributed to a global food security crisis. And if we go back to the report, many of you might be wondering where this information has come from and how the lawyers were able to prove that such a system exists. So the report analysed open sources comprising of information including photographs, videos, public statements by officials and other digital data. 
I'll now add a little bit more detail from the report for you. It found that upon invasion, Russia seized grain facilities from Ukrainian corporations and private farmers, and that they consolidated control through the Russian-affiliated civil administration of these facilities. The Kremlin then invested in networks to transport the grain, including roads, rail and ports. They say that a lot of the grain extraction occurred in Luhansk and Zaporizhia. One of the main parts of the report was that three 170-metre grain carrier ships were pre-purchased by a Russian defence contractor before the war. They then said that multiple convoys were seen carrying grain towards Crimea, while GPS tracks on vehicles stolen from farmers showed that they were actually driving into Russia via Crimea. As I said earlier, rail networks were also used, but barges were also loaded with supplies from Zaporizhia, and their potential destinations were in Russia and Crimea. Another final bit of evidence that they found, which I thought was quite interesting, were that job adverts were posted to Telegram by Russian logistic companies, and they were analysed by investigators. These posts show that Russia just couldn't get enough drivers in time to, support, to transport the vast quantities of stolen Ukrainian grain to Russia. When I interviewed the experts from Global Rights Compliance, they said that all of this was part of a concerted plan to both weaken the livelihoods of many Ukrainians and also place some political pressure on world leaders in relation to food shortages in vulnerable countries like those in the whole of Africa. Again here, I'll add a little bit more context because it's important to explain the link between Russian actions and global food shortages. As I said earlier, Russian blockades of Black Sea ports have left global supplies insecure and they've reduced Ukraine's ability to export grain to those most vulnerable. We saw that the Black Sea Grain Initiative marked an attempt to reintroduce exports from Ukraine to the global market. But this actually expired in July 2023 after Russia unilaterally refused to extend its term. Overall, the main point here is that global rights compliance said that Russia's ability to control grain has given them a trump card in being able to bring people to the negotiating table. And overall, the systematic planning um, has really helped contribute to havoc on a global scale. Thank you very much, Verity, for that report. And thank you very much, Verity and Maidener, for making the time to join us today. Now, let's turn to our guests. Today, we're joined for an update by the team behind GP Now, a web-based virtual clinic, uh, joining Ukrainian doctors and medical professionals to Ukrainians inside the country, including, crucially, the occupied areas and around the world. GP Now has specialists, including psychologists, paediatricians located around the world, available 24-7, who can speak those seeking help in their native language. So welcome back, Rob Hicken, head of GP Now, and for the first time, Spencer Cash, senior emergency response strategist. Rob and Spencer, thank you so much for joining us. Could you just explain a little bit more about your work, what you do day to day, and some of the challenges you face? Thank you, David um, and and Dom and Team Telegraph for having us back. Yeah, so um, we um, we established the um, our, our te- telehealth service GP now back in March last year. We did testing. Uh, we were backed by Amazon Web Services, and we launched the platform in at the start of March last year. We've we built our hospital in the cloud as a, a term that Dom kindly coined consists of 75 certified Ukrainian medical professionals uh, 12 are in Ukraine 
and the rest are spread across Europe mainly and uh, unable to practice outside of the country. We've been able to, thanks to Dr. Vadim Ilyashenko, who's our chief medical officer at the Oberig Clinic in Kiev, build um, a, a very eclectic selection of primary care providers, general practitioners, family practitioners, right through to a lot of um, very deep specialist um, type skills and the and the team workers to provide that continuum of care for patients. Our patients are all Ukrainian. Um, about 60% are uh, outside of Ukraine displaced and 40% are in Ukraine and about 25% of those are actually behind the enemy lines, so to speak. We've provided two and a half thousand hours of uninterrupted service since we went live and Really, three things, David, we, we, we do provide. Um, first of all is we do have the best of the best uh, in terms of the Ukrainian doctors that we've assembled. And most of them are uh, mums with uh, unable to practice in the countries where they've been relocated to. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's all going pretty well. We've, we've, we do have some, um, obviously, psychologists, pediatricians, oncologists, uh, and we even have a veterinarian on the platform and uh, it's it's working beautifully and i just wanted to thank the um ukraine the latest audience because we're um completely uh this year we've been we've had to completely self-fund and uh we've been able to help just over ten thousand families around the world and uh we've done fifteen thousand um sessions and Sorry, the point I was trying to make about the comfort and care comes from um, Ukrainian citizens. Uh, we all forget, you know, I guess we assume once you leave the country and you're safe, um, that life is um, uh, going to be okay. But it's still very, very difficult for Ukrainian citizens, uh, families in countries where um, Ukrainian isn't spoken to be able to articulate uh, medical issues, whether they're really simple primary care issues or or have a deep and meaningful psychological session with a, one of our psychologists. So, yeah, thanks to Ukraine the latest, we continue to to um, make a, a difference. Well, thank you very much, Rob, for that overview there. Spencer, can I come to you? You've recently got back, as I understand it, from a trip to Ukraine, travelling across the country, west to east, visiting previously occupied territories, northeast of Kiev and Erpin, Bucha, Hostomel, uh, and out to the east of Kharkiv. Can you tell us about your time out there? What did you see? What impression did it leave on you? And what did you learn? Dom, thank you very much for the opportunity to speak with your audience today. And um, I'd like to start by sharing those who truly understand the brutality of war are the ones who experience it through trauma. Um, and in, in my life, I've been fortunate to survive many traumatic events, serving in the military and now um, going into Ukraine and, and experiencing uh, what that challenge and, and, and uh, reality is for, for those that live there. Um, and one of the reasons why I'm able to function normally in society today is because of the wonderful care I receive from my psychotherapist, and it really is great sense of humor. I'll share a, a, a story about Alyssa, who was one of my guides in Ukraine. She and her father-in-law gave me a tour of Bucha, Erpin, Hostomel, Borodenka, 
and their village, uh, a small village where they lived under occupation for 10 days and escaped. <clears throat> and the it starts with my support and involvement with Ukraine. And, and early on, I helped a, a charity transport 1,800 tourniquets and other medical supplies from San Diego to Poland, where those were transferred over to Ukrainians who moved them into the country. But in Krakow, Poland, I met Alyssa and she had just been pulled out of the country. And this was day 38 of the war by her father who went in to go get her. Alyssa was engaged to a Ukrainian or it, at the time was engaged to a Ukrainian. And they, her, her experience is through the, the now in-laws that, that cared and, and helped her to es escape from the north of Kiev to the family farm in uh, in the area of Borodanka, a real small village that they live in. And I, I share that because um, I, I want to try to explain that the where we, when I connected with Alyssa, she had just left and she understand uh, understood that uh, I had a background in military service and and medical evacuation in Iraq and Afghanistan, and, and she felt comfortable enough to share with me her experience in war. And I was the first outsider her of her to to listen and understand her her story outside of her family support system. She revealed her story to me as someone who could truly understand her experience and provide meaningful uh, and and meaningful, meaningful uh, support and words of comfort. And after listening to the story about how her, the village, the one street village of maybe 50 or, or 75 um, homes w was occupied and, sh and shelled by the Russians <clears throat> and and what that experience was, I, I, I came to understand that after uh, five wars that I've participated in with the military, that her experience of being shelled was far greater than any experience I had had in having a few rockets shot into the base in, say, Iraq or Afghanistan. And I could, I could see it in her eyes and I could hear it in her voice that uh, she had gone through trauma that was significantly worse than any experience that I had previously. And, and um, it, it's something that, that we who have been an experienced war have a, a, sh a shared bond or understanding. And, and um, it, for me to see that from a young, Alyssa is, was in her young, or she's 20, something years old life full ahead of her and to see how she shared and explained her experience and the trauma that that came with it w was tremendous in in the impact upon me and and this was day 38 i didn't go into into uh into ukraine until much later and just recently and i and i and i met back up with Alyssa and her now father she married the the young ukrainian man and had a baby during that time and i met back up with them and they they took me on a tour and shared 
how they were able to escape with a 10 vehicle convoy of the family to the family farm for lack of or country house, so to say, in an area where they thought that they would be safe. And it turned out that that it wasn't safe and they were surrounded. We visited those areas and I couldn't believe the the scale and scope of the destruction that I saw. It's unlike anything else that I had experienced in in my life and in my war experiences. And it was truly eye-opening and shocking. You see it on on the pictures or on the on the news and video, but it, you you can't understand the grasp and the scale of it until you get there in, in person and someone explains exactly what happened. And some of what I saw was rebuilding and reconstruction. One of the points that that struck with me is is Victor. He's a Ukrainian. That's the father-in-law of Alyssa. He was the driver for us and sharing through his language and it being translated directly to me. <clears throat> After we visited the family farm and they showed me the location where they hid in the in the root cellar from the artillery and all the other challenges that that, that brought, that they were able to escape one day before the village was fully occupied. And um, I didn't understand tr- until we drove out and Victor across the street from his house pointed to another house and said that's where my uncle lived uh he was killed and executed in his front yard and these these are the traumatic experiences that 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 ukrainians had to have dealt with and deal with as part of the russian full-scale invasion into the country and there are many others who are living in occupied territory unable to escape like Alyssa or or, uh, Victor and what they face is a a life or a, a challenge of maintaining their Ukrainian identity while being controlled dominated oppressed by the Russian state. As we understand that Russia follows a doctrine of unrestricted warfare. And what that means is that there are no rules and there's nothing forbidden. And we see the state apparatus efforts with uh, banks being forced to report customers using uh, VPN or Ukrainian POW conscripts or POWs being conscripted to fight on the side of Russia. And for the Ukrainian civilians living in occupied territory, they are forced to forfeit their citizenship and assimilate into the Russian apparatus in, tor- in order to ex- access basic necessities such as healthcare or other services. Spencer, hi, it's, it's Dom here. I wonder if I could just cut in there. It's really interesting the bit that you, you, were, you were describing, the, the, the landscape you were describing, and you were coming on to there, I think something of critical importance to this conversation, particularly with GP now. There have been reports, there are reports, as you're saying now, that the, the uh, those... Ukrainians in the in the occupied areas are having to renounce their citizenship and take Russian citizenship in order to access basic services, including health care. So could you describe for us, please, and, and Rob, if you're able to as well, what have GP now 
been able to do there. I'm, I'm conscious of the security angle to this, as we previously discussed. So don't don't go don't go over the line. But what are GP now able to do in that environment for Ukrainians who do not want to renounce their citizenship, but but do need access to to health and uh, medical services? Well, I, I would just share before I toss the majority of the answer over to Rob on that is that GP now provides an alternative to forfeiture of Ukrainian citizenship in order to access uh, medical services. And they, they are employing Ukrainian clinicians living in under occupation and also uh, providing care to Ukrainians who are trapped behind enemy lines. And Rob, I think you can pick it up from here and, and further detail that. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, um, Spencer and Dom. Um, yeah, so the, the technology itself is super, super secure because we use point-to-point technology, which allows us to go into um, remote regions um, such as a war zone. And the uh, so we are able to connect to we estimate it our statistics for the um, for the country as a whole we estimate roughly 10% are uh, on the other side of either previously occupied or occupied territory and we're providing uh, we are providing some primary care but uh, most of it probably is is psychological services and support and just being able to talk to a doctor without having to um it's pretty serious stuff that side and one of the one of our friends mothers she's in Japorizhnia and we were able to give her the, the medical advice that she needed um, that without her obviously having to give up her citizenship and all the other crazy stuff that's going on. Thanks. And just one more for me, if, if I may. We've, we've spoken before and you've described the difficulty you have docking with the Ukrainian health system. You don't have an advocate in the country. You're not part of the the established infrastructure there. So so making that work and the funding and getting the message out and the and rolling the service out, you've described as, as problematic. Why are you not able to dock with the state apparatus? It's certainly not not for lack of trying, Dom. Uh, we have we're blessed to have the support of two Ukra- wonderful Ukrainian ambassadors, Ambassador Hyman and um, uh, to Indonesia and, and Ambassador Miroshnichenko in Australia. He's incredible. Um, we are part of the Amazon Web Services uh, um, Project Sunflower, and we have briefed President Zelensky, and we have reached out to Yaroslav Agress, who facilitates United24 on his behalf, and we've also spoken with Ministry of Health. The, the, the truth is, after 18 months, um, we have just not, and that's where we believe this should reside, um, now that it's certainly proven and it works and we've spoken to um so many people and we just can't get can't get the backing and support since other than ukraine the latest we did talk to direct relief in the united states uh, dean axelrod the vp for and about partnering with traditional ngos and he's his comment to us was rob it works. Your strength is it works. And we're fitting in this new niche, a uh, bit like drones are to the to tanks today. Uh, we are to delivering medical and um, humanitarian aid. 
but he said our problem it, it, partnering with a comp- with an organization like yours is you are uh, you don't uh, you're not in country so uh, we, we, we're going round in circles uh, we had a wonderful call with medical bridges as well in the United States um, a lot of people want are still working out how to um, take what we've done and scale it and we know Dom that we can scale we're, we're helping and- you know, we can, we know we can help a thousand families a month. We know we right. can go to ten thousand, uh, but we are completely stretched. Um, we've raised, um, we we pay our doctors ten euros to be online. They're refugees themselves. We haven't um, last year when we were fully funded by Amazon. Every month on month, the service increased, increased. And we don't advertise. So I get five to 10 to 15 patients a day registering every day, purely on word of mouth. Um, and it's it's a real struggle. This is a self-funded war. And uh, we certainly don't have a lot of experience with raising funds. And uh, so every month, we're putting all our energy into fighting to find funding and and with the events the recent events in with the world looking elsewhere right now last month was a disaster and we weren't able to pay our doctors um, on the first of november it's after three consecutive months of paying them so we're desperate for help we're hoping somewhere out there is a philanthropic person or um or, or, or a Ukrainian-connected business that would get behind us and bankroll us. We only need $10,000 a month to cover all our costs, 100%. 20% goes to covering the um, the platform costs, and 80% goes to the clinical care team. And they're all predominantly women. Gina on the border in Romania, Tanya and Evgenia in, in, from, in um, Hungary and uh, Germany, and uh, and then the, doc, the incredible doctors it's we just have to keep we're fighting every month to stay alive and i really want to thank the ukraine latest audience because without you over 50 percent of what we've raised this year we would have folded in june and um it'd be a shame because if we do it would be like we were never there and those 10,000 families are real. We have, I'm glad to say, Anastasia, the young girl I mentioned before on a previous call who had chondral cordoma, the life-threatening throat and neck cancer, still doing really, really well. We helped a young girl in, um, right, in uh, a refugee in Indonesia. But we need help. Don't- Let me just quick jump in for and share with the audience uh, some of the core competencies of GP Now that I've I've been able to understand and, and witness. And first, GP Now has the lowest cost for all crisis care medical delivery systems, providing free clinical care to globally displaced Ukrainians and those living under occupation. Next, GP Now leverages displaced Ukrainian clinicians unable to practice medicine in their location and, and employs them to provide crisis care through the hospital and the crowd cloud, excuse me, directly to displaced Ukrainians, achieving a a cultural synergy and trust between the patient and practitioner, which is the ideal. No other NGO extends the continuum of care to Ukrainians trapped behind enemy lines and employs Ukrainian clinicians living under occupation while reaching a global, excuse me, a global diaspora of refugees. 
And lastly, GPNOW demonstrates transparency by routinely publishing the results of, the care, of their care provided and clearly articulates how donor funds are dispersed to care providers. Um, th these are important factors in understanding what the capabilities uh, GPNOW provides to those doctors or clinicians and patients. And I would say that those that are living in working and operating in under occupation, both the patient and the practitioner face great risk, but the reward of the outcome is worth it. Well, thank you both of you for your contributions today. Let's move, I think, to our final thoughts, unless Dom has any more questions. If not, Dom Nichols, would you like to go first? Yeah, thanks. I'd just like to return briefly to um, what we were speaking earlier on, the, the issue of the European Union looking as if they're going to ban the export of precision machine tools and key weapons manufacturing equipment components to Russia. I think this is important because I think the war is now very much into the industrial phase. And what I mean by that is it's into the phase where who can build up enough stuff of the required quality quickly enough and, uh, and this is the hard bit, decide whether or not to expend that resource in a series of small offensives to keep the pressure on the enemy, look for opportunities to break through, shore up domestic, international morale, etc., etc. Or do they keep the powder dry, build up a much larger force and come back in a few months' time with a much more, a much more capable military force? So I think that's where we are at the moment. It's, a, it's very much a political decision, more than a military one, especially for President Zelensky now, with any inaction at the front being interpreted either willfully or through ignorance as stalemate and some are saying there's no there's no proof or, or, or this is proof rather that, that, that there's no chance of defeating russia all nonsense in my opinion but there is pressure on ukraine to do something particularly with the clock kicking down uh, ticking down to the u.s president's uh, election next year i think it's going to take a concerted political effort for ukraine to continue to make the case for support and to win the argument if they choose to 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 essentially do no major advances in for quite a number of months to win that argument and say that it's worth holding on for, for something bigger next year. But it is a very real concern. And and so the defence industrial side of this war is really going to come in to uh, the fore, I think, now and over the, the next few months, because I think things are going to s slow down, certainly on land. I mean, war, of course, is much bigger than, than land. Look at what's happening in the Black Sea and inside Russia and internationally. So that, that's why I think it, it is wrong to characterise the, the ending of, the, of Ukraine's counteroffensive as stalemate. There's a, a huge number of moving parts to this. But one of the one that's coming absolutely to the front now is, is defend, the defence industrial base and what, um, and what it means. And I look at this in more detail in today's Defence in Depth film, or this week's Defence in Depth film, is out. Be out on YouTube in about four or five hours ish. But I look at what the apparent end of the Ukrainian counteroffensive means and how it fits into what the, the the direction of the wider war. But I think it all comes down to the news that we're seeing today out of uh, out of potentially out of the European Union. Thanks. Well, thank you very much, Dom, Spencer, and Rich. Would you like to share your very brief final thoughts, please? Yeah, I'm sorry, this is Spencer. I'd just like to share and hit that thank you to all the audience and the listeners. And as Rob explained that roughly for the past eight months, that um, it's the individual listeners who've helped to fund and keep this service going. And as we finish 
uh, with Veterans Day, Armistice Day, Remembrance Day, and in America, move into uh, Thanksgiving, a time where we focus on family and, and caring, uh, I would ask those that are out making preparations for their family meals and their time with their loved ones that they think about others that who don't have that opportunity and, and need that medical and mental help to continue and hope to keep going and living and striving and moving forward and making good advances in, in their life and caring for those that, that are their children. And once again, it is because of those individuals in your audience who have the kindness of heart to give and support, uh, whether it be $10 or $100, uh, it all makes a difference. And we thank you for that. Thank you very much, Spencer. Uh, Rob, would you like the very final words? Thanks. Thanks, David. And, and, and thanks, everybody, for your continued support. Yeah, just in closing, uh, another important, two important dates coming up. Saturday week is the 90th anniversary of the Holodomor. And um, uh, here we are um, 90 years later, and we're still dealing with massive humanitarian issues. I, I appeal to the Ukrainian diaspora out there, the Ukrainians who are in a position to help us help other the great people of Ukraine through this these troubled times, please consider supporting us. And um, and the other major event coming up is first of December, which is which is the beginning of winter. And with the winter, the darkness will come. The darkness. So please, um, I know um, you, you'll be putting our details in the description. Just wishing everybody um, in America happy Thanksgiving for the upcoming period, and uh, God bless. Team Telegraph and Slava Ukraini. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Giles Gear. And the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.